At the beginning of the American Civil War, the Confederate States of America were faced with creating an army, and even more daunting, a navy. Starting essentially from scratch, it needed warships to defend ports and harbors, and a merchant marine to establish desperately needed trade with foreign nations. Mr. Lincoln ordered a blockade to negate both objectives. In response, Southern political and military administrators turned to radical naval design and innovation. The construction of ironclads was one response. Another, the very source for this episode. This is the story of the Confederacy's desperate attempt to break the Union blockade, the first submersible in history to sink an enemy vessel. This is the incredible continuing story of the H.L. Hunley. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. It was one Francis G. Smith of Alabama who emphatically stated, From the Chesapeake to the mouth of the Rio Grande, our coast is better fitted for submarine warfare than any other in the world. That assessment was a most interesting one when one considers that in 1861, his Confederacy struggled to put surface vessels out on the water, much less any under it. Yet, acting on Smith's assessment, enter Horace Lawson Hunley. At the time of the war, he was the deputy collector at the U.S. Customs House in New Orleans. Born December 29, 1823, up in Sumner County, Tennessee, he was an 1849 graduate of Tulane and later made his fortune in sugarcane. A lawyer and legislator as well, in the summer of 1861, he joined his brother-in-law and two others to bankroll a secret project. The endeavor was headed by James R. McClintock and Baxter Watson. McClintock was of some renown, for it was said that he was the youngest riverboat captain on the Mississippi. The project, the three, McClintock, Watson, and Hunley, schemed to construct a submersible. They wanted to take advantage of the Confederate Congress's May 6, 1861 approval for the authorization of Confederate privateers. Their application was one of some 3,000. Even before they learned the fate of their application, they began work in the fall of 1861, and that effort spilled over into early 1862. Their creation was an oversized cigar. They called it the Pioneer. It was 34 feet long, 4 feet in breadth, 4 feet deep, and weighed in at 4 tons. Its hatchway was a torso squeezing 18 inches in circumference. In February of 62, testing began on the black-painted vessel, which held four. Inside, cave-like. Candles provided light. 
Leaks were repaired with beeswax and tar. A hand crank powered the vessel. A great concern, how much oxygen while submerged and for how long. They tested it in March 62 at Lake Pontchartrain, when, with a torpedo attached to the tip of a spar, it made an attack on a wooden barge. The barge was blown up, and subsequently, a letter of mark was given by the Confederate government on the last day of March 1862. Although the Pioneer never sank a Union vessel, it remains the only submarine ever sanctioned as a privateer. It never claimed a victim because at 2 a.m. on the morning of April the 24th, 1862, two red lanterns signaled the upstream advance of David Farragut's ocean-going Union fleet. And once past the Confederate forts St. Philip and Jackson, the defenseless city of New Orleans surrendered at 1 p.m. the next day. With Union control of the city and its waterways, the pioneer had nowhere to go and was destroyed. Its creators, Hunley, Watson, and McClintock, fled the city. They relocated 140 miles east in Mobile, Alabama, and not to be denied, began work on submersible number two. There, in the second leading cotton exporting port in the south, Mobile, the trio were joined by machinist Thomas Park and Thomas B. Lyons. Inside Park and Lyons' machine shop, work began on Pioneer 2, or as it was sometimes called, the American Diver. As work began, another engineer, Lieutenant William A. Alexander, joined the team. Collectively, they experimented with electromagnetic power and steam, but opted to return to their original mode of propulsion a hand crank, which turned a propeller. Though quite similar to the original, the Pioneer II was bigger. It was 36 feet long, 3 feet wide, and 4 feet high. 12 feet at each end of the vessel was tapered. Two hatchways were provided for some five or six men. Completed, it had to have a Confederate stamp of approval and that fell to the man who, in March of 1862, had captain the CSS Virginia, Admiral Franklin Buchanan. He observed trial runs of the Pioneer II throughout the winter of 62-63. Capable of only two miles per hour, he thought the submersible slow, and with a mine or torpedo, as they were then called, dragged behind, Buchanan thought the vessel unreliable to deliver its payload. Still, a desperate confederacy had to take desperate chances. In February of 1863, the submersible moved into Mobile Bay to attack the federal blockading fleet. Towed out in rough weather, its hatches were open and breaking waves dumped water inside the vessel until it filled, rolled over, and sank to the floor of the bay. Incredibly, no lives were lost. Buchanan commented, I considered the whole affair as impractical from the commencement. Yet more backers lined up for another try. You see, the lure of prize money was most tempting. One who signed up was gunsmith E.C. Singer. 
If the name rings a bell, yes, his brother Isaac invented the continuous stitch sewing machine. Another was Dr. J.R. Fretwell, who along with Singer constructed underwater contact mines. United, the team called themselves the Singer Submarine Corps. Engineer Lieutenant Alexander described their concept. Their newly designed vessel was 42 feet long, 4 feet wide, and 5 feet deep with two hatchways, two raised combings like conning towers, both 8 inches high. It had a mercury gauge for determining depth. Far from crude, it was an engineering marvel. Here are several examples. The hull had abutting rather than overlapping plates. As to the riveting of the plates, all rivets, and there were thousands of them, were sunk or hammered flush to the outside to reduce drag. The vessel's plumbing system was ingeniously designed. Two pumps in the sub were found to have triple functions. They served as ballast pumps to add or remove seawater, and as bilge pumps. And by the twist of a valve, either pump could control the water level in either of two ballast tanks. Nine valves controlled the vessel's network of pipes, which were attached to two ballast pumps. The crankshaft was not connected directly to the propeller, but was instead offset to starboard and tied into a system of reduction or differential gears and a large flywheel. This helped sustain the crankshaft's rotation and propeller's momentum. The inside of the vessel was painted white, which magnified any illumination. A wooden bench for the crew was mounted on the port side. This bench, measuring 12 inches wide and 18 feet long, was made of pine. The design of the vessel's propulsion system reveals the secret of how engineers solved the problem of balancing the craft with seven or eight crewmen sitting on the same side, the port. The cramped interior forced the crewmen to hunch over the crankshaft, thereby putting their collective center of gravity amidship. This remarkable submersible was named after yet another investor, Gus Whitney, Whitney's submarine boat. And if this name sounds familiar, yes, Gus had a relative by the name of Eli. On July 31, 1863, Admiral Buchanan was present for the testing of this, the third design. An attack was planned on a moored flatboat. A 200-foot rope dragged a Singer contact mine. The submersible approached, then descended 20 feet, leveled off, and blew the flatboat up. Buchanan was pleased, but interestingly expressed concern about a sense of fair play from, as he put it, another infernal machine. Still, he sent a letter of recommendation to the head of the Confederate Department of South Carolina in Georgia under P.G.T. Beauregard. Intrigued about the potential of this newfangled contraption, Beauregard called for an interview with Watson and Whitney. 
willing to give it a try. On August the 7th, 1863, Old Bory, as he was nicknamed, alerted railroad authorities. He wanted to expedite transportation of the vessel from Mobile to the very cradle of secession, Charleston, South Carolina. The vessel arrived on or around Wednesday, August 12, 1863, by means of two flat cars. It was unloaded and docked on the Cooper River and based in a cove behind Fort Moultrie on Sullivan's Island. Interestingly, it arrived about the same time businessmen in the area upped the ante for Confederate successes in breaking the Union blockade, which sat just outside Charleston Harbor. Part owner of an exporting firm, George Alfred Trenholm, and colleagues from that firm offered bounties. They offered $100,000 for the destruction of the USS New Ironsides or the sinking of the USS Wabash. $50,000 was offered for the sinking of any Union ironclad monitor. Despite the financial incentive, things dragged with relation to the newly arrived submersible and its going into action. So much so that on Sunday, August the 23rd, Confederate Major General Thomas L. Klingman complained that the submarine crew was not daring enough. So Beauregard shifted control of the vessel from civilian to military. Lieutenant John A. Payne assumed command of the vessel. McClintock and Watson reduced to civilian advisor status. Upon the submersible's arrival in Charleston, the vessel had been called the Porpoise, or the Fish Boat. But around August of 63, a new name surfaced, the H.L. Hunley, or simply the Hunley. On August 29th, it was moored near Fort Johnson on James Island for the express purpose of using that base to attack the Union fleet that very Saturday, which patrolled just outside the harbor. As the Hunley prepared to sally forth, disaster. As Lieutenant Payne climbed into the forward hatchway, he became entangled in the sub's mooring hawser. With the order to shove off already given, he tried to free himself, and in doing so, his foot hit the lever that depressed the diving fins. With both hatches open, the submerging Hunley rapidly filled with water. To compound the disaster, a steamship cruised past, and its rope snared the submersible, and the Hunley capsized. Payne, in the forward hatchway, was able to scramble out, as did two men via the other hatchway. But of the six in the belly of the vessel, only one was able to get out, and he, only after the descending vessel had carried him to a depth of 42 feet. Five others were not so fortunate. Ten days later, civilian hard-hat divers Angus Smith and David Broadfoot raised the Hunley. Their work only some 200 yards from Fort Sumter itself. The effort, simply put, was gruesome. Fish and crabs had fed on the bodies, bodies which were so bloated that limbs had to be sawed away to extricate the unfortunate victims. 
A disturbed H.L. Hunley wrote Beauregard on September the 19th that the sinking was due to men who were not accustomed to the vessel's engineering. He wanted civilian reinstatement, and three days later got his wish, but not command of it. That went to Lieutenant George Dixon, who had captain trials back in Mobile Bay. Along with Dixon, training began again, but not without tragedy. It was later in 1863, a Thursday, October the 15th. A staged run or attack was planned on the Confederate state ship Indian Chief, which was anchored out in the Cooper River. For the exercise, Lieutenant Dixon was absent that day, so instead the vessel's namesake, Horace Lawson Hunley, was in command. The submersible left its mooring at 9.25 a.m., Ten minutes later, it dove as it made its practice run at the Confederate vessel and passed under the Confederate ship. Crew members on the Indian chief raced to the other side of the ship to watch the Hunley resurface. But something had gone wrong. It did not come back to the surface. Once again, Salvager, Smith, and Broadfoot were commissioned. They found the vessel on Sunday, October the 18th, in 54 feet of water. The sub's bow had plowed into the muddy bottom of Charleston Harbor. Though found, unfortunately bad weather moved in and the salvagers couldn't bring the vessel up. Finally, three and a half weeks after the accident, the Hunley was brought to the surface. The 36-year-old namesake pilot Hunley was removed first. He and Thomas Parks, son of the Parks, who along with Lyons owned the mobile machine shop that made the vessel, perished from asphyxiation. The rest of the crew, seven men, drowned. Upon inspection, Hunley apparently left the front ballast valve open. It overflowed. A failsafe, a 250-pound keel weight that, if released, might have given the crew a shot at resurfacing, failed to detach. Once again, five cleaning brushes, a large box of soap and lime employed, and the grisly task repeated. The namesake of the Confederate submersible was buried Sunday, November the 8th, 1863, in Charleston's Magnolia Cemetery. The next day, the other seven crew members were also buried there with full military honors. The fish boat, as some called it, had been named for Hunley. But now civilians and military people alike referred to it as the peripatetic coffin, the murdering machine. With the latest disaster, Beauregard said simply, I can have nothing more to do with that submarine boat. And yet, again, desperate times demanded desperate action. Another crew, believe it or not, was immediately raised. Men who, by sinking Union ships, could rake in bounty money. This crew was placed under the command of Lieutenant Dixon, who had just returned to Charleston in November. Lanky and blonde, he was in his middle twenties. Standing just under six feet, he had been part of the slaughter that was Shiloh. He, a private in Company A of the 21st Alabama. 
The restored sub was now moored near Mount Pleasant, which was on the east side of Charleston Harbor. There, despite the fact that 13 had died since the submersible's arrival in Charleston four months earlier, the new crew assembled and began training. They needed to, as there was no sign that a federal blockade would be lifted. And that fact prompted a Monday, December 14, 1863 order for the Hunley to move on the Union blockading fleet. By now, the vessel dragged a 90-pound copper cylinder torpedo, which made use of a percussion and primer mechanism. Lieutenant Dixon was well aware that any mission would be rife with danger, and so, for good luck, he carried in his pocket a $20 gold piece. It had been given to him by his young girlfriend, Queenie Bennett. Her gift at the beginning of the war had saved Dixon's life at Shiloh. There, on the 6th of April, 1862, the first day of the battle, a federal bullet slammed into his left thigh. Incredibly, the bullet struck the gold coin, and though it was dented, it spared his life. He and his crew would need that luck and more, for the distance to open water from Mount Pleasant was considerable. Before, the sub was often towed by a semi-submersible, a so-called David. There were some 12 to 14 of these crude but innovative vessels that sat right at the water line. One had even attacked the USS New Ironsides back on October the 5th, 1863. Its target had three-quarters of its 230-foot length covered with four-and-a-half-inch iron plating. Though the attack by the David did not succeed in sinking the new iron sides, it did have a consequence. It put the entire Union blockading fleet outside the harbor on alert. That heightened when a Confederate deserter made the fleet aware of the Hunley. As Confederate desperation to break the blockade increased, the decision to expand the submersible's range was made. Not only were ironclads near the harbor entrance targeted, but now wooden ships offshore. And another decision was made. When the Hunley sallied forth, there would be no tow by a David. Propulsion would be made by hand cranking, and the distance to reach the fleet would be some 12 miles. Now, in an effort to reduce the distance, the sub's base was moved to the eastern end of Sullivan's Island, to Battery Marshall, which overlooked Breach Inlet. And finally, another change. The torpedo was now positioned in front of the vessel, some 17 to 20 feet away, a spar torpedo, which held, we now believe, 200 pounds of black powder. Success demanded rigorous practice, about four times a week. Top speed by hand cranking reached four miles per hour. Stamina was vital. So was nerve. Dixon put the crew on tests that required them to stay submerged for extended periods of time. One night, the crew filled the ballast tanks and settled to the bottom. A candle not only provided light, but the amount of oxygen left to the crew. After 25 minutes on the bottom, the flame went out. 
Now, beforehand, Dixon had instructed that when any one member was about to panic, he would shout, up! So after the candle had died for want of oxygen, there, in the dank, damp blackness, they sat for more than one hour, then two. Some ten minutes later, all nine in unison shouted, up! In the inky blackness, hand pumps to force water from the ballast were found and employed. However, one refused to work. Panic began to take hold, but Dixon, fumbling in the dark, found and took off the cover of the faulty pump. Inside, he found seaweed, which had fouled the mechanism. In the pitch black, he tugged at it, removed the material which cleared the pump, and the sub slowly began to ascend. They had been on the bottom for two hours and 35 minutes. It was during this crucial period of training the crew's chemistry changed. On Friday, February the 5th, 1864, the experienced engineer, Lieutenant William Alexander, and another crew member were ordered back to Mobile to work on another project. Two eager but inexperienced volunteers from Company A, South Carolina Light Artillery, replaced them. Despite the change, the sub's intent and mission were never altered. Locate a Union ship, which was some four miles from its mooring at Battery Marshall, attack and sink it. That distance would require a couple of hours of hard hand-cranking to reach Rattlesnake Shoal, which would then put them close to a target. The shoal was about five and a half miles from Sumter and outside the mouth of the harbor. It was there they identified their target. There, in 24 feet of water, was the 12-gun USS Housatonic, a 207-foot-long screw sloop, which had been built in Boston's Navy Yard and was under the command of Captain John Pickering. To cover the required great distance, the Hunley needed a flat sea. Choppy water for several postponements. But on February the 17th, 1864, Mother Nature seemed to cooperate with their desperate venture. On that Wednesday afternoon, Dixon had problems with the sub's new torpedo system. After taking the vessel out for two hours of practice in the creek behind Sullivan's Island, he returned to the Battery Marshal dock to make adjustments. An observer recalled years later, Lieutenant Dixon landed and requested that two of my regiment, the 23rd South Carolina Volunteers, go aboard and help them to adjust the machinery as it was not working satisfactorily. Another man and I went aboard and helped propel the boat for some time while the lieutenant and others adjusted the machinery and rods that held the torpedo and got them working satisfactorily. After that, Dixon walked to the beach, got a compass bearing on the Housatonic. That night, the weather was perfect for their designs. It was a calm, windless night, yet because there was going to be a little too much moonlight just before full, Dixon worried that they would be more visible than he cared to be, but he was tired of waiting. Just before 7 p.m., Dixon ordered his crew to load up. Seven others beside himself wiggled into their stations. 
Dixon informed those at Battery Marshal that when the sub was ready to return, he would show two blue lights as a signal. That would prompt troops to then light a signal fire on the beach so that the men of the Hunley had a marker for steering back to their base. It was then Lieutenant Dixon climbed aboard the vessel, closed the hatch, and together they slid off into the darkness. From Breach Inlet, they took advantage of a strong current. The men at the hand crank had been at it for over an hour. All the while, Dixon made every effort to keep them on course. Remarkably, he was successful, for when he brought the vessel to the surface to monitor their progress, there, only several hundred yards away, was the silhouetted Housatonic. It was now about 8.45. On the deck of the Union warship, a free black Union sailor, Robert Fleming, saw something first. He was standing bow watch, scanning the water between the ship and the dark outline of the Palmetto State's coastline. With a waxing moon casting a faint light across the ocean, he could just make out the dark mass of Fort Sumter, nearly six miles away in the distance. Yes, he had seen flotsam and the like, but nearly 15 minutes before nine, he spotted something on the water about 500 feet away. He estimated the object was some 22 feet long. Only its ends were visible. Concerned, he called out to a deck officer. There is something that looks like a log. It looks very suspicious. Lewis Comthwaite walked over, took a look, and said, It's a log. Fleming answered, Queer-looking log? And then he added that this log was not floating with the tide. It was moving across it. Still, Comthwaite dismissed Fleming's concern. It was nothing more than a log. Fleming then asked the sailor on the port side bow to take a look. C.P. Slade also thought it was a log. But Fleming said they were both wrong and even added there was a torpedo coming. Conscious of the alert of the Confederate Davids, Fleming took issue with a lack of concern on those on deck with him. And he said, if no one is going to report this, I will cut the boy adrift myself and get ready for slipping the anchor. That pronouncement prompted Comthwaite to bring to his eyes his binoculars. By this time, the object was much closer and closing He turned, and to alert a superior, he sprinted for the bridge. By the time Comthwaite reached John Crosby, the Housatonic's officer of the deck that night, a dozen men topside had seen the strange phenomenon. Crosby himself thought it was a porpoise coming in on the ship's starboard flank to the surface to blow. But to be safe, he gave the order to slip anchor and fire up the engine. As he did, he then called out to Captain Pickering, who at that moment was in his cabin. By the time the captain appeared on the deck, an aide approached and handed him a double-barreled shotgun filled with buckshot. Pickering ran to the gunwale. To his horror, that's when he got his first and only look at the H.L. Hundley. As he later testified, it was shaped like a large whale boat, about two feet more or less under water. Pickering fired his gun at the thing, aiming for the two projections or knobs about one-third of the way from the bows. Several more fired on the strange craft, but it appeared the shots had no effect. 
depressed cannons could not fire. The Hundley was now too close. When Pickering realized the gunfire was having no effect, he called out to the engine room to go astern faster. By then, the submersible was only a few yards away from the ship. Crosby ordered the crew to move toward the bow, away from what he expected, impact and a blast. As they scampered, the Hundley made contact with the Union ship's starboard, just forward of the mizzenmast. And with Union rifle and pistol fire blazing away, there was detonation. When the blast came, Pickering was headed for the bridge. But as soon as he took his first step, the deck seemed to be no longer there. And for him, the world went silent. Crosby recalled that the explosion felt more like a collision rather than a detonation. When the Hunley rammed the Housatonic with a torpedo packing 200 pounds of black powder, the blockade ship had just barely started to move. Crosby said there was no smoke, no flame, no sharp report. There was simply a feeling of pressure. Indeed, there was. For the Hunley had struck the Union vessel on its rear starboard quarter, just below the curve of the hull. The blast knocked the warship off its keel, forcing it to lurch heavily to port. It heaved over in a death lurch, a hole in its side ten feet wide. Frigid water poured in. The Housatonic was sinking fast. Chaos. The explosion knocked several sailors into the ocean, and others lay covered in deck debris. Some climbed into the rigging to avoid the freezing seawater. John Crosby and four other sailors successfully launched one of the Housatonic's few surviving lifeboats, and they set out to locate and pick up survivors. While Crosby was fishing disoriented men out of the water, he heard Pickering call to him from the rigging. He first asked Crosby to come get him, then ordered his officer to pull for a neighboring ship, which was about two miles away, to get help. The damage? Five were dead. Two injured. But far more important to the Confederate cause, the Housatonic went down in less than five minutes. Through all the confusion after detonation, no one thought to keep an eye out for the vessel that had inflicted all the damage. But on this historic night, they became the first victims of submarine warfare in history. As for the attacker, after the blast, the Hunley vanished. Mission accomplished, but there was no return to Battery Marshall. For 131 years, why? What happened? Speculation. Then on May the 3rd, 1995, underwater archaeologists off Sullivan Island found something. Responding to a hit by a magnetometer that trailed their vessel, Ralph Wilbanks, Wes Hall, and Harry Piccarelli found something curious in 30 feet of water. There, after investigation, under three feet of sediment, incredibly, they found one of two conning towers. To protect their remarkable find, they delayed their announcement. Eight days later, on May the 11th, novelist and marine archaeologist Clive Cussler of Raise the Titanic and Inca Goal fame, announced the Hunley had been found. It was some four miles off Sullivan's Island at the approach to Moffat's Channel. Its location spawned curiosity, 
from its attack on the Housatonic. The Hunley was on the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean floor some 1,000 yards farther out to sea. More questions. What caused its death? Union fire? Drowning? Asphyxiation? Five years and almost three months after the find, with all of Charleston Harbor and Civil War enthusiasts buzzing with excitement, the vessel, on August the 8th, 2000, was carefully and delicately raised. We're now in the third decade of first-hand research, and the journey has been one revelation after another. For example, scientists found that the eight-man crew of the hand-cranked Confederate submarine had not set the pumps to remove water from the crew compartment. That seemed to indicate that the vessel did not flood. This revelation was just one of many, and it all began January 21, 2001, when excavation began. Scientists found the remains of the crew and found that they showed little intermingling, something that one would expect if there had been panic in a flooding crew compartment. Besides the remains of those eight crewmen, some of their personal artifacts included Dixon's watch, which interestingly stopped precisely at 8.23 p.m., his binoculars, brass compass, a diamond brooch, and gold diamond ring. Four smoking pipes were found, two pocket knives, 17 canteens, a medicine bottle, buttons, buckles, wooden toothpicks and matchsticks, and found the discovery of something that was before only oral legend, the $20 gold piece reputed to be with Dixon on the night of the fateful sortie. Minted in 1860, one side bears the image of Lady Liberty, and the other a federal shield and eagle. That side had been sanded, and clearly bears four lines of script in cursive. It reads, Shiloh, April 6th, 1862. My life preserver. And in the initials, G-E-D. And that leads us to another remarkable step in the discovery process. The facial reconstructions of the crew. Physical anthropologist Dr. Douglas Owsley and forensic artist Sharon Long brought the crew of the Hunley back to life. Each found skull of the crew was cast, and that served as the foundation which defined the shape of each reproduction. Twenty-one depth markers were attached to each cast at specific locations, and all provided clues. Several features were determined by the morphology of the skull, shape, slope, and breadth of the forehead, prominence of the brow ridges, distance between the pupils, positioning of the orbits inside the eye sockets, outline of the face and jaw, shape and prominence of the jaw line, lateral profile of the skull, and overall configuration of the cranial vault. Now, some features were left to the artist's interpretation. Configuration of the lips, mouth and ears, the aging of the face, hair, eye, skin color, and hairstyle. But add the study of teeth and diet 
and their incredible work allows us to sit in the belly of the submerged vessel and stare into the faces of men who made history. In the belly of the sub that fateful night, 30-year-old James F. Ridgeway of Maryland, Virginian Frank G. Collins, who we believe was 23 to 26 years old, James A. Wicks, who was from 40 to 45 years of age and from North Carolina. From, oddly enough, Northern Europe, Arnold Becker, who was aged 19 to 22, and whose spine indicated that his life had seen plenty of hard labor. Another Northern European, C. Lumpkin or Simkins, 37 to 45 years of age. His battered skull implied that in life he had been a brawler. There was a third Northern European, 40 to 47-year-old J. Miller, and a fourth crewman, J. F. Carlson, 20 to 23 years of age, and yes, a 24 or 25-year-old lieutenant who that night, his luck ran out, Lieutenant George E. Dixon. On April the 17th, 2004, with the crew identified and their remains encased in coffins, time seemed to spin in reverse. The thousands upon thousands lining Charleston's battery and its streets, the men of the Hundley were with full military honors laid to rest. The line of marching units that day alone stretched for one and a half miles. Their starting point at the Charleston Battery, literally in the shadow of Fort Sumter. The scene complete with an estimated 30,000 reenactors, including women dressed in mourning, carrying and shepherding along children. The vast majority were, as one might imagine, in Confederate gray. But what caught many an eye were representatives of white and black Union units who made the four-and-a-half-mile funeral march from the Battery to Magnolia Cemetery. It seemed surreal. It seemed as if all were on the set of a movie. But the emotion displayed was not acting. It was real. Although there were a few black reenactors, media outlets reported that most African Americans, when they learned of the procession, either disapproved or simply dismissed the event. At the other end of the emotional and political spectrum, some Confederate enthusiasts suggested that American flags should be banned for the event. To add an official air to the occasion, 12 southern governors were invited, but none attended, each one citing conflicts with schedules. One thing has remained constant since the evening of the 17th of February, 1864. What claimed the lives of those eight crewmen? Suffocation? Drowning, a lucky shot from a crew member of the Housatonic. Into that swirling world of speculation comes new and head-turning evidence. After an exhaustive three-and-a-half-year study at Duke University, Dr. Rachel Lance, a biomedical engineer and blast injury specialist, 
The same scholar who presented the first equations to predict the risk of injury and fatality from underwater explosions, she has painstakingly acquired data that rules out suffocation, drowning, or a lucky shot. Her findings strongly indicate that the crew of the Confederate's submersible was killed by the blast wave or blast pressure of their own 200-pound torpedoes black powder explosion. Given that the furthest of any crew member from the blast was only about 42 feet, the blast wave from its detonation instantly claimed the lives of all as the force of the explosion passed through the soft tissue of their bodies. Lance's tests indicate that they very likely experienced blast trauma, which would have meant that their lungs would have filled with blood and there might even have been traumatic brain injury. Her cutting-edge study and must-read findings can be found in her soon-to-be-released book, published by Penguin, In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. After revolutionizing military history, the Hunley, a crippled victim of its own device, drifted out with the tide and slowly took on water before it sank some 984 feet from its first and only target. The Confederacy had hoped that its innovative creation would break the Union hold on Charleston and perhaps, just perhaps, turn the tides of war. But that was not to be. The Confederacy limped along for another 15 months, and as for the vessel's home port, Charleston, it is true that the city was never captured. But on the 15th of February, 1865, Beauregard ordered the evacuation of Confederate forces from the besieged city. Ironically, one year and one day after the Housatonic's sinking, the mayor of Charleston surrendered the cradle of secession to Union troops. The first submersible to sink an enemy vessel was lost to history for 131 years. However, its technology and design survived and were improved upon. Two world wars in the 20th century showcased their destructive capability. Today, we are told some 38 nations have over 500 submarines. Over 140 are nuclear, and they are distributed amongst China, Russia, France, the UK, and the United States. Their prowess, vitally important in tactical and strategic military planning. All, as was the intent of the first to claim a victim, with a potential for assassination from the bottom of the sea. Since you enjoy the story within history, I would like to introduce you to Threads of the War, personal, truth-inspired flash fiction of the 20th century's war. Emotionally compelling, individual stories from World War I, II, and the wars we keep fighting because of them. Download the latest episode of Threads of the War from your favorite podcast app, and may the lessons of history compel the world toward peace. When we next gather, we'll return to the western theater of the conflict, to northwestern Arkansas, at a 
battle that escapes the attention of many, but one that would hold great strategic consequences. An engagement around Elkhorn Tavern, the first sizable battle in the American Civil War to include Native American troops. I hope you'll join us when we tell the story of the Battle of Pea Ridge. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.